The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. That's Acts chapter 13. And I'm not going to read it all, but would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we're longing for the Spirit to come now in this moment and speak so that we would see you more clearly and walk out of here changed, conformed into the image of your son, Jesus, just a little bit more. As we behold his glory, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So fill us with your spirit now and cause your word to go forth with power. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Every parent at one time or another has been asked the question by their child, where did I come from? Where did I come from? And depending on the age of your child, the answer varies. Sometimes this leads into a conversation about the birds and the bees. Or sometimes you say, mommy's tummy, and hope that they'll drop it. Or other times you say, God gave you to us. Sometimes this is where older siblings, if they're within earshot of hearing that question, they say, mom and dad picked you up on the side of the road. And you laugh because some of you older siblings are out there. Knowing where we came from is essential to understanding who we are. Knowing where we came from is essential to understanding who we are. The stories that our parents tell of our growing up years or of their years or our, the stories from our grandparents or our growing up experiences all help us make sense of our identity. Our origins help to shape our character. Our origins help to shape our character. This is probably best seen in the fictional character Batman. He's driven by justice and vengeance because of the murder of his parents as a child. This traumatic experience shapes the rest of his life and mission. So origin stories form how we view the world around us. Why does that matter? Well, in Acts chapter 13, this is an essential chapter to our origin story as the church. All of life began in Genesis, and the church was birthed in Acts 2. But Acts 13 is where we get record of the first sending out of missionaries, the first official missionaries that are sent out in order to make disciples. And the church is born, it grows, it matures, and now they're being sent out. And this is part of our origin story. Because the gospel doesn't go to the very ends of the earth without this pivotal chapter in our story. It's like a child that grows up and matures and finally leaves the house and moves away for college. 
until they graduate and they come back. But that's another thing. The main passage, the, the main point of this passage reveals that Jesus sends the church on mission to shine the light of Christ to the very ends of the earth. Jesus is sending his disciples on a mission to shine forth the light of Jesus. And if Jesus is sending his disciples to do that, we want to get on board and shine forth the light of Christ here in this day as well. The church exists not just to relax, not just to coast. You're not just waiting to get to heaven with nothing to do right now. But we are disciples who have been saved and sanctified in order to be sent out for the salvation of some. We've been saved and sanctified so that we would be sent out for the salvation of some. It's written, very, it's written right into our mission statement. Spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. So Acts 13 gives us a little bit of that story. The global missions movement is birthed right here. So what we should see in Acts 13 is not only that this is part of our origin story, but it should motivate us to be engaged in the mission of making disciples. When you think about your mission here in this life, you might think about raising good kids or being a great grandparent or, or kind of earning money so that you can support your family, but is one of the pivotal pieces of your mission in your mind that you exist to make disciples of Jesus. If not, I hope that changes by the end of this sermon today. That you would see it as part of your life mission to make disciples and to shine forth the word of Christ. So this chapter is long, 52 verses, and we're going to break it up into three sections and move fairly quickly. So we get the first section in verses 1 to 3, where the Holy Spirit sends out missionaries. Then we get verses 4 to 12, where the word goes forth in power in this power encounter with a magician. And then we get 13 to 52, where we get the first sermon of Paul, which causes rejoicing and reviling. So look with me at Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. What we see in this opening verse is that the Antioch church, which will serve as the foundation for the launch of this Gentile missionary work, has a diverse leadership team. They're geographically diverse and they're probably ethnically diverse as well. Barnabas, he's a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus, which is where they're going to travel in just a little bit. He's nicknamed the son of encouragement, and he's mentioned first because he's likely the leader of this group. Then we get Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black. So he's probably a black man of African origin. And then we get Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was an early Greek settlement in Africa. And so it's also thought that Lucius is from North Africa. He's black as well. And then we get Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod 
the Tetrarch. If you remember, Herod the Tetrarch ruled over Galilee during John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. And so Manan is likely maybe a cousin or a childhood friend or a servant, a child that grew up in the household, and now he's come to faith in Jesus. And he's one of these influential leaders in this early church. And then we have Saul, a diaspora Jew from Tarsus who studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. So we get this diverse leadership team. And what we see next in verse 2 is that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. First question that comes to mind is, how did the Holy Spirit say? And prior to that, he said that there were prophets and teachers. And so very likely that through a word of prophecy, through one of them, the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And how does the church respond? Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church is engaged in fasting and prayer and worshiping. And even after they get this word, they continue that devotion to God so that they might confirm that what they heard from the Holy Spirit is, in fact, what is to take place. And I think one of the main takeaways here is that the church is the one that confirms and sends out missionaries for ministry. The church is the one that sends out missionaries for ministry. None of us should operate as lone rangers. You know, I have a mission. God said it to me. I'm going to be sent out whether any of you are with me or not. No, 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 no. The church is the one. It's the context in which missionaries are raised up so that others can say, boy, you're so gifted when you do that. Have you ever thought about maybe doing that overseas or in a different context, or I'm so helped when you teach. Have you ever thought about being a teacher? Maybe here locally, maybe going to seminary, maybe going overseas. The church is the one that confirms and calls out gifts. And so if any of you are thinking about going to the nations, becoming a missionary, going into vocational ministry, start serving now here in the church. I remember once Pastor Sam shared with me a story. I think it was not at this church, so that's why I can share the story. Uh, I think he was pastoring in South Dakota, and a lady came up to him after the service and said, God has called me to sing solos. That's what she said to him. How do do you respond to something like that? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, We'll see, right? The, The church, guided by the Spirit, is the one that calls and confirms leaders. And and as we've seen already, Barnabas and Saul have been engaged in the work of extensive preaching and teaching and a traveling itinerant ministry. Acts 13 brings a heightened focus for us, a heightened emphasis on the work of frontier missionary work. It was so important that the Spirit had to call it out so that the church would send them out, set them aside to say, here's where I want them to go. There's probably good, fruitful ministry to stay at the church in Antioch, but I have more people who are still of this fold who have not yet been reached, and so we're sending them out. And I think one main application, which is very simple for us, 
this morning is that we should never lose sight of the missionary instinct that has characterized this church for decades and decades and perhaps 150 years. If the Lord tarries for another 150 years, we ought to be about sending people out in order to reach the nations so that the very end will come, so that Christ will be proclaimed. So so there's lots of things we want to do grow a strong children's ministry and worship together, but we do not want to do so at the expense of praying and sending and laboring to reach the nations with the gospel. Because there are people who have never, ever, ever heard the name of Christ. Not once. And they still need to hear this good news. So how will the nations be glad? through our prayers and sending and laboring in global missions. Now, our world is changing so rapidly, is it not? It feels like everything is shifting. You you read of those old missionary biographies and you think, wow, times have changed so quickly. You know, missionaries can be out and back or they could be via Zoom and that there's all these different changes. The world is changing quickly. But what hasn't changed? The mission has not changed. God has not changed. The Lord Jesus Christ has not changed. And the way in which people get saved has not changed. And so global mission, sending out of missionaries, continues to be one of the things that we are going to be about by God's grace. We want to send out and support the work to the nations. And I imagine right now, In a gathering such as this, the next Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael is sitting here with crayons and and coloring in their little notebook as God raises them up for the next generation. And so parents and grandparents, pray. Pray that God would raise them up. So the church has been given a mission to make disciples. Now let's look at verses 4 through 12. Barnabas and Saul go down to Seleucia. They sail to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean Sea. This is where Barnabas is from. And they travel throughout the island proclaiming the word. And and what Luke gives us is this encounter with a man named Bar-Jesus, who was probably a spiritual advisor or maybe a, a court astrologer for the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And we're told that this is kind of a ruler or a governor, and he's a man of discernment or intelligence. And it says in verse 7 that he sought to hear the word of God. So he invites Barnabas and Saul, come tell me about this Jesus. But then the crisis presents itself in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, but Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And in the next verse, it says Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just pause right there. When you think of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit, what comes to mind? What does their face look like? I imagine kind of those uh, precious moments, statues, you know, the big teardrop eyes, just full of kind of idyllic gentleness and joy, filled with the Spirit, right? Well, let's see what Paul says. Verse 9, Paul, Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, you son of the devil, You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That's included so that we would see that it happens right away. Can't see. Then the proconsul believed, verse 12, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we think, boy, those are some harsh words that come out. And yet those are perfectly appropriate. The Holy Spirit gives him the ability to discern the wickedness of Elimus, and he calls it out. And it shows us once again, like we saw last week, for those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, it will not end well. Now, there's one thing that Paul says that's particularly interesting in verse 10. He says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I think what's being conveyed there is Paul is saying, God's given us a straight path. He sent us to Cyprus. Sergius called us over. We're preaching the gospel to him so that he would be saved. And yet you're distorting that. You're you're, you're making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And I think what this illustrates is that the mission to proclaim Christ is not just Barnabas or Paul's, but it's actually Christ's mission. Christ has a mission to make himself known, and he's made straight paths for it. And yet, when Bar Jesus goes head to head with the Lord Jesus, the result is obvious and clear. Why does does that matter? It matters because the mission that we've been given, the commission that we've been given, is not something that Jesus doesn't care all that much about. We've all worked for someone maybe that's given us busy work. And we do that busy work and we know yet it's low priority and they're not going to check up on it and no one cares. I remember one summer I had a temp job and all I did was filing. Eight hours a day of filing. It was terrible because no one was ever going to check. No one cared whether I did it or not. And yet there I was making $6 an hour to, to do filing. And yet that's not true when it comes to this mission, when it comes to evangelism and missions and reaching the nations with the gospel. This is Jesus' mission. This is the great commission. This is right at the heart of Jesus Christ. He came so that he would seek and save the lost. And so are our hearts in alignment with the mission of Christ? Or are we going about our day saying, well, if God opens up a door If, you know, my neighbor walks over to me right now and asks me a question, maybe then I'll talk to them. Or or maybe if my coworker, you know, if they really press me on what, what I believe about Jesus, or are we engaged, praying, laboring, thinking, asking God, oh, let the nations be reached. Use me so that some would come to saving faith in you. We are to see ourselves as participants who have been recruited by way of our salvation to be engaged in the mission of God. And we do not fear or fret. Do we see that we've been commissioned, that you've been called, you've been given permission by Jesus to magnify Christ in shining forth his word to those who do not yet know him? 
So we're a sent people on Christ's mission. And I think the next section illustrates that we're going to get a mixed reception. So in 13 to 52, we see Peter, or Paul's first recorded sermon, which causes rejoicing and reviling. So they, they travel from Cyprus all the way up to Antioch in Pisidia. So this is different from the Antioch of where they started, the Antioch in Syria. And so now they move into the region of Galatia. So this wouldn't be unlike there being a Princeton, New Jersey, and a Princeton, Minnesota, right? So they, they move up into Antioch of Pisidia. And in verse 13, notice, he says, Now Paul and his companions... So it seems like a shift has begun to take place where Paul is the leader of this missionary team. Doesn't mention Barnabas first anymore. And then notice how in verse 9, where they switch from Saul to Paul, and from this point forward, he will be called Paul. So he goes from his Hebrew name to his Latin name to signal that the work is mainly going to be among Jews and Gentiles outside of the surrounding region of Jerusalem. Now, they go to the synagogue, as was typical for Paul. And Paul was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He was a student of Gamaliel. And so the rulers of the synagogue say in verse 15, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This would have been a little bit like dangling red meat before a dog. Paul is salivating. He can't wait to stand up and say something about Jesus. And here they are giving him the floor, giving him the mic. And so what does he do? He preaches from 16 all the way to 41. And I think we can break up his sermon into two main sections. We get the history lesson from uh, 16 to 25. He takes him from Exodus to Jesus, and then he preaches the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from 26 to 41. So first, in 16 to 25, I'm not going to read it, but what we can see is that he's unfolding Israel's history from the very beginning all the way until now. He chose our fathers, so he's calling back to mind Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he walks through salvation history from slavery in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, taking hold of the promised land, Samuel the prophet, Saul the king, and then King David. And then in the line of David, there would be a Davidic king, the offspring of David. And that is Jesus. He's pointing that all of Israel's history finds its culmination and climax in the person and work of Jesus. This is the Davidic king. The Messiah has arrived. The Savior has come. Why does Paul do that? He does that to show he's not going rogue from Judaism. What he's doing is, I'm reading the Old Testament the way it's ought to be read. All of it is pointing forward. We've all been waiting for this Davidic king, for the Messiah, for the Christ. And Paul says, he's come. I have a message for you. This is good news. Because the Jewish Messiah has finally come. All of redemptive history is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. What he's saying is, this is your origin story. And it's come to fruition. The anticipation is over and the fulfillment is here. 
It's a little bit like a prolonged engagement for uh, a couple that's about to be married. Some of you remember those days if you're married. We had a year-long engagement. I would not recommend that. It's just far too long. It doesn't take that long to plan a wedding. Uh, I don't recommend doing a year. If you know you should get married, go get married. Um, but engagement is this extended season of anticipation for the bliss of something better, right? But Israel's anticipation, their season wasn't 12 months, wasn't 24 months. It has been hundreds and thousands of years waiting for the promised one. And Paul is trying to tell them, he's here. He's come. The waiting ends now. He's ruling and reigning on high. During that year-long engagement, if someone said, you can get married right now, six months in, I would have taken them up on it. We can finally consummate the marriage. And imagine the excitement and amazement. And this is what is unfolding. Paul is saying to these Jews who've been waiting for hundreds and generations, generation after generation, finally it's arrived in our lifetime. The promised Savior has come. You don't need to wait anymore. The good news has finally arrived. Now, in the second part of his sermon, Paul tells them specifically about Jesus' death and crucifixion and resurrection in fulfillment of all the scriptures. Look with me at verse 26. I'm going to read 26 to 31. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message, sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem, those Jews in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize Jesus or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They crucified Jesus to the cross. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's speaking of Jesus' disciples, who are now his witnesses to the people. They're still living to this day. You can talk to them right now, and they will tell you that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. So he's walking through and explaining that Jesus came, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So, so Jews in those days would have gone to the synagogue. They would have opened up the scriptures, maybe the scroll of Isaiah, and they would have read something from Isaiah 53. And they didn't realize it was speaking of Jesus, whom they had killed. They crucified him. They carried out all that was written of him. And yet all of this unfolded precisely the way God had planned so that God would raise him up from the dead. Verse 30. And then next, what he does is he quotes from Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, and Psalm 16. All Old Testament passages to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He's giving an apologetic for what he's saying. So, look with me at verse 33. He says, You are my son. This is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Now, if you'll remember, Psalm 2 is all about how the nations rage, the people's plot in vain. God sits in the heavens and laughs. He's in control. But not only is he in control, he's going to raise up a holy one. And this holy one will rule and reign. And what does Paul say? Paul says, this holy one, this anointed one is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And then Isaiah 55, 3. It says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then he cites Psalm 16, 10. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Verse 35. Both of those are pointing forward to the fact that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. He did not decay. And he goes on to explain that in 36 and 37. David did, in fact, die. David fell asleep. His body was buried. He was laid with his fathers. His body decayed. It saw corruption. But he says, Jesus never saw corruption. He never decayed. Now, why, why does all of those Old Testament passages, why does all of that matter to us? It matters because all of the promises of God in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And it also means your faith is not a dead faith because it does not rest on a rotting corpse that's in the ground right now. If your faith rested on a rotting corpse, we would laugh at you. That, that, that's ridiculous. Our faith rests on the risen and exalted and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over all things. There are certain religions where they worship dead ancestors. And sometimes you see this if you walk into an ethnic restaurant. They have little shrines where they put oranges there so that these dead ancestors can, can eat of it. Or they burn money so that their dead ancestors could have something to spend in the afterlife. And yet we serve a king who rules and reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. And this is so important for us because my sense is in evangelicalism, sometimes we live as though God is dead. We live as though Jesus is still in the grave. We fret, we get anxious, we're afraid of where the world is going. We fail to believe functionally in our heart of hearts that Jesus Christ rules and reigns from heaven right now. That even if we get killed, he is in sovereign control, unfolding all of human history according to his plan. And that we would engage in the missionary endeavor, reaching the nation, spreading the gospel, evangelism as though God is in control. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, unfolding his plan, causing his word to go forth so that as we speak it, he would give it power and it would be the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and for the Gentile. Our faith is not a dead faith. Amen? Paul concludes his sermon in verses 38 to 41 by highlighting the forgiveness of sins that Jesus brings. He says, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then you have freedom even from the law of Moses. 
So no longer is forgiveness of sins. For all of these Jews sitting in the synagogue and all of these devout God-fearers, people who had converted to Judaism, gotten circumcised, follow all the Jewish food laws, he says all of that is no longer needed. Forgiveness of sins isn't tied up in the temple, isn't tied up in animal sacrifices, isn't tied up in the law of Moses. It's found only in the person and work of Jesus. And so this is good news. And for all those here this morning who are sinners in need of a Savior, you don't need to travel to Israel You don't need to visit the Holy Land. You don't need to offer a sacrificial lamb or a dove. You don't need a certain amount of good deeds or follow a long list of rules. But all that is needed this morning for anyone who has fallen short of the glory of God is that you call out in repentance and faith and he will grant you forgiveness of sins. We can be so inoculated to that amazing, astonishing truth, can we not? We, we take it for granted. Oh, of course. I had a banana for breakfast, too. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. We just think, oh, yeah, God forgives our sins. It, it's so stunning, so simple, so wonderful that we almost lose sight of how stunning it is. That nothing can wash away our sins except for the blood of Jesus. And he shed it for us. And that's why Paul cites in the next section Habakkuk 1.5. Do you see that? He says, look, you scoffers. This is in verse 41. Be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So he, he opened, before he quoted that verse, he said, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Now, we, we studied Habakkuk a couple of months ago. That was in reference of God bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel through a foreign nation to invade them, to punish them. And, and people are astounded. How could God possibly do that? And now he uses it to say, in the same way that you're inclined to disbelieve that God would use a foreign nation to judge us, you're inclined to disbelieve this gift of salvation that is so simple, that is found only in the person and work of Jesus. Don't neglect it. See how amazing it is that if you're sitting here, not under God's wrath, not condemned, that it's a miracle that made that possible that your sins could be forgiven. And even though you've been saved, you sinned this week. You did not honor him as you ought to honor him. You did not do all that he called you to do. And yet God continues to lavish his grace upon us so that we would have forgiveness of sins. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So how do the people respond to Paul's sermon? Well, some rejoice and some revile. We see in verse 42 that they begged them to come back next week, come the following Sabbath. Some followed them to where they were staying. Likely, they've come to Saving Faith. Tell us more. And it says, yet there were people who were jealous. The following week, they came back. The, the whole city 
had come and gathered, and they reviled them, it says in verse 45. And so this is just a reminder for us that when people reject the gospel, it's normal. When we preach the gospel, it is aroma of life to some and aroma of death to others. There will be people who reject Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And yet Jesus has a mission that he sent us out for so that we would go and proclaim this good news for the salvation of many. This is illustrated when Paul says in verse 46, the Jews have thrust the gospel aside and have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. But even this rejection doesn't slow down or muzzle the apostles, but the gospel continues to go forth to the Gentiles. He says in verse 40, and he cites 40, Isaiah 49, 6, in verse 47, he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This remains a global mission because Paul knows his Bible, that when God made his promise with Abraham, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus came to be a light for the Gentiles, and now they go forth as a light. Even the rejection of the gospel does not dampen or prevent its continued advance. And then in verse 48, it says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Sovereign election at work through the Lord Jesus Christ as he rules and reigns on high. Even as the prominent Jews stirred up the prominent people in the city and and cast them out. It says, they, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, how do we apply these things to us this morning as the church of Christ? We are sent. We are a sent people, brothers and sisters. We have been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish Christ's mission. The gospel could have went out a number of other ways. It could have used other means, but the way in which it goes out is through very normal people like us sharing with our neighbors, inviting them in to study the Bible with us, sharing the gospel, loving them so that they would have an open door to hear what we might have to say. We have been given this mission Acts 13 is part of our origin story where the first missionaries were sent out to make disciples of all nations. And we see in this account that the word of God, even if it's rejected, does not return void. And this remains true today. This story, this chapter of Acts, it ought to inform our mission and our priorities, and our proclamation of God's word. I remember uh, an evangelist writer once saying, you know, if you go into a church and you ask, how many people are, have the gift of evangelism? Usually you'll see less than 10% of the hands. Usually like maybe 1% of the hands. Most people don't think they have it, right? And And he says, why is it that 
God, Jesus would say, the, the harvest is plentiful, that the laborers are few. Pray that God would send more laborers into the harvest. Why would he so ill-equip his church to, to have evangelists to share the gospel? And why do we believe that evangelism is something like we do it once and we didn't do a great job or maybe it was awkward or it was difficult and, and so maybe we should never do it again because I clearly don't have that gift. But, but we expect teachers to maybe go to seminary and learn how to study and read the scriptures or if you play piano, you probably practice an hour a day and you, 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 you take lessons for about 10 years so that you can get up to a certain level of competency. But with evangelism, we just think, oh, I definitely don't have that gift. My guess is, this morning, I want to say 50%, 40% maybe, of us have that gift. We've just not yet exercised it. We just don't know if we're any good at it because we haven't used that gift. And so I just want to call us again. Use the various gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you for the advance and spread of the gospel and for the building up of his church. We have been saved and sanctified so that we can be sent to share Christ for the salvation of some. Embrace the fact that you have a mission to shine forth the word of Christ so that God would use it to draw people to himself. Let me end with these lyrics that we're going to sing in just a moment. It says this, By faith the church was called to go, in the power of the Spirit to the lost, to do what? To deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. So may the Lord Jesus Christ do that. Draw people to himself. Deliver captives so that they would be emblems of grace forever for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, do that here this morning in us so that we would be instruments conduits, vessels of your grace and truth to a world in desperate need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.